to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 17, The Battle of Berkeley. I hope you guys have had a great week and are ready to see what happens when the Sembrai finally invade northern Italy. Now, before we begin, I need to let you know that there will not be an episode next week. So we will be skipping next week, and we will start up with the post-Sembrai era of German and Roman relations. Let's go ahead and get started into today's episode. So as a reminder, Marius has defeated the first half of the Grand Alliance in southern Gaul. He's left their army completely destroyed and has captured the kings. As he is celebrating his victory, Marius receives word that he has just been elected again as consul of Rome, and that the Cimbri had made it past the Alps and were marching into northern Italy. So, you're probably wondering, how did this happen? How did the Cimbri get into northern Italy? Well, the Grand Alliance had split as the Teutones and the Ambrones aimed to invade Italy from the west, from the Rhone Valley in southern Gaul, modern-day France, while the Cimbri pushed through the eastern Alps from modern-day Austria. This allows them to stretch the Romans out and break through the Alpine barriers. Deal with this two-front issue, Marius had taken the western front and left the eastern threat to his co-consular, from 102 BC, because remember, typically they changed every year, Lutatius Cotylus. Now, we believe that Cotylus initially had the larger half, but over the next two years, from Cotylus's predecessors and onwards, the army size shifted in favor of Marius. Cotylus's army at this point is the weaker of the two. Now, we do have plenty of sources to pull from for this last act of the Sembrai Wars. However, all of these sources have a purpose. They have a goal in mind of either playing up one character or another. In this case, they are playing up either Team Cotylus or Team Marius. For instance, Cotylus will write his own history. And surprisingly, in his story, he really, really thinks that Consul Cotylus does an amazing job. Shocking, I know. You'd think he would try to be focused on the facts only. But no, he likes to play up his own role. But we're not going to dive too far into that because that's really going to take us off the focus of this episode. I just want to let you know that our sources for this specific era is going to be very skewed. They're going to be focusing on praising one and dissing another. Anyway, Cotylus decided that his initial strategy was to spread out and guard all the passes in the east. For my Roman historians, or history lovers, Sola is a part of Catullus' troops at this point. 
Carlos seems to have spent some time subduing local tribes in the Alps, reinforcing their loyalty to Rome and having them act as, again, forewarnings of the sunrise approach. These tribes would stay in their homelands and they would receive word about the sunrise moving towards them and then they could reach out to the Romans and let them know what was happening. Catalyst seems to have 20,000 men at this point. They are spread out on the Alps. He has secured the loyalty of the local tribes. And then according to Plutarch, Catullus surrenders the Alps and retreats to the river Adige. He does this in the winter of 102 BC. Now apparently he did this because there were too many passes for his army to guard. If he tried to stay there, then the Sembrai could brute force their way through one of these passes and destroy his army in detail before it could unite. By retreating to the river, Catullus maintains a strong enough force to battle the Sembrai and slow their advance, at which point he apparently does so. But this is what Plutarch is telling us. You see, other sources don't agree with Plutarch. They mention that Catullus was actually handed a defeat by the Sembrai, and that this retreating of the Alps wasn't because he wanted to, he had to. He then tricks the Sembrai by making them think that they're about to fight another battle before he retreats, and he fortifies around the river Adige in order to buy time. Overall, these other sources seem to make more sense than Plutarch's lone voice. First of all, Catalyst should not be stretched out guarding all the passes of the Alps. He just gained allies to act as a warning measure to let him know when the Sembrai were arriving. And also, this isn't a fast-moving army. The Sembrai are moving as a people. There are women, there are children, there are elderly. All their possessions are in this caravan. It is large and it is slow-moving. There is no way that Catalyst would not see it coming and know where they were heading before. So Plutarch's idea that Catalyst wasn't able to keep an eye on the passes does not match with what we know from the other sources and what we would know about the current situation. So instead, let's follow this second scenario provided to us. Catalyst is handed a defeat. He's pushed out of the pass and then tries to trick the Sembrai, which works for a while before he's forced to retreat to the river Adige. This position, even though it's strongly fortified by Catalyst, apparently can't be held. Quote, the Sembrai began to dam it up, the river, tearing away the neighboring hills like the giants of old, carrying into the river whole trees with their roots, fragments of rock and mounds of earth, and crowding the current out of its course. Unquote. So the Sembrai go upriver from the Romans' defenses, which has been set up on both sides of the river, and then they start putting heavy objects in the river 
Now you're probably wondering, why are they doing this? What is the purpose behind this? Well, Catalyst had built his defenses on both sides of the river, but he had also built a bridge, which allowed him to get his troops quickly across that river. Well, these objects that the Sembride throw into the river smash into this bridge that he's made, and they destroy it, immediately causing Catalyst's army to despair and to panic. Half of them are on the wrong side of the river. And depending on who you're talking to, they might think that they're on the wrong side of the river because the Sembrai is on the far side or that the Sembrai are on their side. But the Roman army is split in two and they lose all faith. Catalyst claims that when the army began to rout, he had his standard put in front of the unit leading this rout so that the people of Rome wouldn't panic and think that it was Catalyst's doing. No, I'm pretty sure Catalyst was leading the charge to get back to Rome at this point. What about those who are on the wrong side of the river? This includes many forts, small detachments. Well, you'd think that they would probably be at the mercy of the Sembrai. One such garrison was put at the mercy of the Sembrai. And from the sources, they apparently were able to fight off the Sembrai long enough that, quote, extradited itself by its own unaided gallantry and overtook the fleeing proconsul and his army, unquote. This one's from Livy, by the way, who is not a fan of Catalyst. More stories from our sources just talk about that this was a defeat for the Romans, no doubt about it. And Catalyst, who tries to play this off, kind of gets drowned out by all these other sources. Some of these sources even mention that pieces of the army refused to obey Catalyst when he tried to get them to stand their ground. Others mention that the Roman cavalry didn't stop until they were in the outskirts of Rome itself. Northern Italy had fallen. Catalyst had lost control of his army. There was literally nothing, nothing in between the Sembrai and the city of Rome. Finally, finally, the Romans stopped running. They reached the south side of the Po River, and Catalyst is able to reorganize. But he has surrendered the entire cis-alpine region to the Sembrai. He's left northern Italy in their hands. By the way, this has not happened to the Romans for over a century. The last two times they lost northern Italy had been to Hannibal during the Punic Wars and the Gauls who had sacked Rome afterwards. Question is, will the Sembrai have the same chance as the Gauls? As Catalyst and his army tries to regroup at the Po River, what's Marius doing? I mean, he's just won a massive victory over in Gaul, and then he gets this word that, hey, yes, you're proconsul, but um, listen, 
Your um, your other console, huh, he just got, he just got defeated. Um, we lost control in northern Italy. We kind of need you back here. You, you think you could come back here now, please? And that's what he does. He dashes off to Rome. He leaves his army in Gaul because he doesn't have time. He dashes back to Rome. One of his fellow officers from northern Africa becomes his fellow consul. So he has a really strong working relationship with the other consul. Catalyst does not get reelected. Shocker, I know. But Catalyst is not reelected like Marius was. As Marius is rushing to the city, Rome was in a frenzy. It was stressed beyond belief. Florus tells us, quote, if they, the Sembri, had immediately marched on Rome with hostile intent, the danger would have been great, unquote. Meaning, if the Sembri had shown up, there's literally nothing we could have done. Few thought that the broken army that was sitting on the south side of the Po River could stop the Sembri if they decided to march on Rome. Now, what are the Sembrai doing? I can hear what my Sembrai fans are saying right now. They're going to give chase. They're going to tear down Catalyst's army. They're going to take Rome. They're going to end it and win it. But they don't. They do not do that. They do not give chase. Instead, they stay in northern Italy and they enjoy the region that the Romans have just abandoned. Now, my fans are probably going, why have they stopped? What are they doing? Rome is theirs for the taking. End it now, 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 now. However, this isn't an army. This is a tribe. This is a people. They have no military campaign in mind. Instead, They're looking for a land to stay in. And they just conquered the land that they needed for the first time. Now, there is another possibility for why they decide to stop northern Italy. And it is a little bit more militaristic. The idea is that the Sembrai and the Teutonas and the Ambronas and the other members of the Grand Alliance had all agreed that they would meet in northern Italy after they had passed through the Alps. They would combine their forces there and then march on Rome. That's a nice thought. That's a really nice thought. However, at this point, there's no way that the Sembrai have not heard about what has happened in southern Gaul. They know there is no army coming to help them from over there. So that wouldn't explain why they decide to stop. Instead, it's because They are a tribe, and they finally have the land that they wanted to settle in. Something to back this up, by the way, is that when Marius finally goes after the Sembrai, the Sembrai send ambassadors to talk to Marius, hoping to reach an agreement. These ambassadors ask, no, demand, land to settle on, which favors the tribe. They want northern Italy. And this supports the idea that they had taken northern Italy and they were settling it at this point. 
And by the way, that meeting I just talked about, it doesn't go anywhere. First of all, Marius kind of does a faux pas. He brings the captured kings of the Sembrai's former allies in front of them and parades them in chains. It's not a good way of starting off the meeting. Um, and second of all, there was just no way that Rome was going to agree to allow the Sembrai to hold on to territory that close to their home with virtually no way of stopping them if they decide to go on the war path again. So when these ambassadors do arrive to meet with Marius, their hopes are going to be denied. There's no way that Marius could agree to these terms. Instead, another battle would have to happen. And this one would have to be the last one. Because the Romans and the Sembrai simply could not coexist. Now Marius, before he marches on the Sembrai, is able to get his army from Gaul down to the Po River. At this point, he literally only had the 20,000, probably less at this point, but 20,000 of Catalyst's broken army standing between the Sembrai and Rome itself. However, because the Sembrai do not push, do not try to take Rome, he gets enough time to bring his army from Gaul over and combine the two forces. With him leading the two armies, Marius marches across the Po River and heads toward the Camp Sembrai. And for a few days, the Sembrai and the Romans move around. The Sembrai are trying to keep ahead of the Romans, avoid fighting, while the Romans, they're trying to pin down their enemy. Finally, after a series of failed meetings between ambassadors and Marius, a meeting is called between Marius and the Sembrai chief, Boyorix. By the way, this should be the same Boyorix that killed our Roman cohort Aurelius before the Battle of Aricio, which may or may not have happened, as I mentioned in that episode. But if it did, then yes, this is the same guy who chopped off his head. Anyway, during this meeting, they decided that they would eventually meet on the Randuan Plain on July 30th, 101 BC. Now, the Romans had combined about 52,000 men. About 20,000 of these was from Catalyst's broken army, and the rest were his veterans from the victory in Gaul. They were up against 100 to 150,000 of the entire Sembrai tribe. We are informed by Plutarch that the Sembrai alone had 15,000 cavalrymen, which would have been way more than any Roman army. Now, just because there were 100 to 150,000 at the battle doesn't mean they were all combatants. This is still a tribe, so a lot of these numbers would have been women and children. Marius sets up his army with Catalyst in the center. And he puts his veteran troops on either side. This is probably to serve two purposes. First, it's to make sure that the army of Catalyst, which has very questionable morale right now, is not going to rout because they were outflanked. 
And also, Marius believed that the worst of the fighting was going to happen on the flanks. In the previous battles, the Sembrae had simply outmaneuvered the Romans. They had gone around the Romans. And so the flanks were always the dangerous point. So it made sense that you put your best troops on the flanks. And it's with this battle that we can really start to see that our sources are pretty biased. On Team Catalyst, there's Plutarch. And he believes that the Cimbri, at the beginning of the battle, launch a cavalry feint that the Romans charge into in a disorganized manner. Which, for most military busts, when you see a disorganized charge, you know that's probably going to turn into a rout pretty soon afterwards. As dust rose up from the battle, Marius and his flank just sat in confusion looking for enemies. They never engaged, according to Plutarch, leaving Catalyst to do all the heavy lifting. Yeah, sure. That sounds like a recipe for victory. On the other side, we have Orisius. And he claims that the Romans were able to set up formation before the Sembrae were prepared and were able to defeat the Sembrae thanks to the dust and the sun and attacking the Sembrae in their confusion while the Roman army maintained discipline under Marius' control. See how wildly different our two ends of the spectrum are? And all of our sources can fit somewhere into here, between Plutarch and Orisius. Now, I'm not going to do a breakdown of the battle by each different source. Instead, I've gone, I've read through the sources, and this is what I believe happened on that battlefield. However, this doesn't mean it's entirely accurate. So take mine with a grain of salt. But here we go. This is a plain. There is no advantage in terrain. There is one army on one side of the field, and there's another army on the other side. The Romans are in formation. On the far side of the field, the Cimbri have their cavalry bunched together in the front. The infantry stand behind them, ready to charge. And the Cimbri decide that instead of waiting for the Romans to come at them, they are going to take the battle to the Romans and remind them why the Cimbri should be feared. For Marius... This works perfectly for him. He has a strong, solid line of defense, which can support each side of the flanks if needed. He's happy not to move forward. He would rather the Sembrae attack him than risk messing with his own lines. Sembrae's plan is to send all their cavalry forward, straight at Cotylus's men, those that had ran when they first met the Cimbri. The cavalry would slam into the Romans, break through their formations, cause a panic, and right behind the cavalry would come the Cimbri infantry to mop up whatever was left. 
And then they would capture Marius. And he would listen to reason. Or they would march on Rome and end this once and for all. So the cavalry is launched. 15,000 horsemen armed with spears, shields, and their own war cries launch themselves at the Romans who have to stand there. Those in the front probably shaking as they see the horde moving towards them. The Sembrai infantry follow after the cavalry, but they're blinded. Because as the cavalry charges forward, they kick up dust that completely covers the Sembrai infantry and blinds them to what's happening in front of them. But they don't stop. They keep pushing onwards. The cavalry slam into the Romans. And you would think the Romans would break. They've already broken once. Why not break this time? But they don't. They hold their formation. Marius is able to be there. He's able to maintain control. Keep his army from breaking. And instead, the Sembrai, losing too many of their men to this failed charge, break first. And what could have been an organized retreat turns into a rout as the cavalrymen flee for themselves, turning back towards their army to safety. The Sembrai infantry are still blinded. The dust clouds still covering any vision in front of them. And the thundering that had grown distant suddenly becomes louder as their own cavalry runs into them, throwing their entire organization into confusion and disorder. Men are tossed aside by their own horses, and panic spreads as the plan has failed. And as the confusion spreads through the lines, as the infantry slows down, trying to figure out if this is friend or foe that they've run into, the Romans charge into them. Marius had seen what had happened to the cavalry and realized the opportunity. As the cavalry routed, Marius gave the order to give chase, and the timing was perfect. The infantry of the Sembrai is disorganized, and they're confused, and they're tired, and they're scared. And then the Romans charge into them, sowing more chaos, more confusion. At first, the Sembrai hold for a while. Their own king, Boyerix, rushes to the front and he starts to rally the men around him as he cuts down one, two, three, four Roman soldiers. But he's instantly recognized as a threat. The Romans target him specifically and he eventually goes down to a lucky swing. At this point, there's no hope for the Sembrai. Their king has fallen. They turn and they rout from the field. They run towards their camp, towards their homes, hoping that the Romans won't give chase. As they reach the camp, they tell the women what's happened. and They immediately start barricading the camp. The women arm themselves and everyone tries to hold the Romans off using wagons and luggage, whatever is at hand to form these impromptu barricades to slow the Roman forces. But 
Mars is not to be stopped this time. Eventually, the women's line is broken, and the Romans begin to loot the camp, killing many and capturing others for slavery. By the time the sun sets, out of the 100 to 150,000 Simbri, only 60,000 is captured, including two other chiefs of the Simbri tribe. The rest lay on the field that has ultimately changed the fate of Western civilization forever. The Grand Alliance has been defeated by the Romans. The only tribe that we've talked about for the Grand Alliance who has survived seems to be the Tigrini, who were apparently acting as a reserve for the Sembrae and did not advance to support them against Marius. They would survive to fight another day. In fact, they would survive until the day the great-nephew of Marius takes the field, a man by the name of Julius Caesar. So how did Rome win this battle? When every single battle they have fought against the Sembrae before have left the Romans fleeing the field. How's it possible? It was definitely not the numbers. The Romans in this battle had smaller numbers than most of the battles beforehand. Rather, it's the centralizing control enforced by Marius and the disjointed attack led by the Simbrae. They went straight in to the Romans. They tried to punch through rather than spreading out and outflanking the Romans with their superior numbers. Simbrae are shattered by their own forces that Marius can take advantage of. And then he makes sure to end the threat permanently, something the Simbrae have failed to do every single time they've had the chance. But Marius ends it, and with it he ends the Sembrai Wars and this section of the podcast. Now the Sembrai do not disappear completely. They will appear later on, but they will never be the threat that they are right now. Those that survived this last attempt to end Rome were probably not all captured. Julius Caesar mentions that some Gallic tribes are related to the Sembrae of old and his conquest of Gaul. And the Romans will run into a tribe that shares the same name. They believe it's the same tribe that nearly ended them during their stage as a republic. Those that were at the battle and captured, they would live the rest of their lives in slavery many of them working for the senators that they had been terrorizing with their many, many victories. And they disappear from the record. But there is no doubt that they would live on in the Roman Republic, taking part in slave revolts or simply accepting their new roles. This era, this small piece of Roman history, and this first meeting between Rome 
and a possible Germanic tribe had huge consequences. First of all, the Cimbri came this close, just an inch from ending Roman control of Gaul, of Spain, of northern Italy, and probably ending the Roman Republic's empire for good. They inflicted a series of defeats, including one of the most bloody disasters in Roman history. They united tribes from several different regions into a war against the Romans. And they had caused a series of rebellions from Gallic tribes. In fact, they will cause huge disruptions as slaves will rise up in revolt, as pirates will start picking off the Roman merchants. Because the Romans are so focused on the Cimbri, they lose control in parts of the Republic. But in the end, the Cimbri do not finish the job. They do not in the Roman Republic. For my loyal Roman voters who have voted for Rome every single time before this, I congratulate you. You've won the war. You've lost every single vote before this, but you've won this time, and you won the one that counted. And for my Sembri voters, I am so sorry, but your winning streak is over. Don't worry, though. Just like you, the Romans do not forget about the Sembri. We already talked about how Julius Caesar mentions how their relatives are still alive in Gaul and how they run into a tribe across the Rhine. But they also don't forget the overall disaster that affected the Romans when they ran into the Germans. This changes a lot of perspectives for the Romans. To them, the Germans are a huge threat now. There's something to be feared because they nearly ended the Romans, this barbaric tribe, something that Gaul hasn't been able to do centuries, something that Spain has never done, the Germans have nearly done in their first meeting. So the Romans are always going to tie the Germanic tribes across the Rhine to the Cimbri, to this near disaster. Julius Caesar and others will mention the prowess of the Germanic tribes, and their cavalry, of how the Gallic tribes on the Rhine are superior to the ones further away from the Rhine because they have to fight these Germanic tribes. They'll talk about the dread that feels the men when they have to fight near the sites of battle from the Sembri Wars, when they're in the Rhone Valley and have to pass through Mauricio, the fear that goes through the entire legion of Julius Caesar's forces. And there are immediate changes for the Romans themselves, not something that lasts forever, like these mental issues that the Romans will never get over, but immediate consequences to the Sembri Wars. First of all, there's Marius. You just made him consul for many times, most of those in a row. You just set a bad precedent something that you've tried to avoid your entire life as a republic. Now you've given this one guy all this power for such a long stretch of time. Do you think he's going to give it up easily? 
I want to plan on it. Second, you have this question of citizenship that's going to arise because of the Sembri Wars. Rome's manpower is at an all-time low. The city itself has lost so many men in these disasters to the Sembri. Forces the Romans to rely on their allies. And these allies, these neighboring cities in Italy itself, well, they're going to want more rights and trade for all these men that they're giving to the Romans. And then there's the disasters. There's the revolts. There's the pirates. There's the point where they literally have to go and reconquer parts of Gaul again. All of this has to be done thanks to the Sembri Wars. But we're not going to get into too much detail about that because that's Roman history. That's Roman history. We don't need to worry about that. Instead, in two weeks, when we get back together, we're going to skip ahead when Julius Caesar decides that it's his time to shine and that it's time that the Roman Republic took care of the rest of these goals. And you're probably wondering why we're bothering with that. And it's because the reason he gives to end a lot of these pesky Gauls is because they've invited a bunch of Germans over and the Germans are starting to set up a new home. Twitter, and I will talk to you all later.